coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. We say farewell to Dan, but don't despair. We've still got a ton of great topics to cover. We compare the handling of recent data breaches at Imager and DGI and what that means about our trust in their security practices. Plus, we share a bunch of in-depth guides to upgrading your security posture this holiday season and see Dan off with some of your finest feedback and surely the world's tastiest roundup on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This is episode 347 for November 28th, 2017. This episode is brought to you by our three wonderful sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining us one last time is our friend Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hello, Wes. Hello, audience. And you? You're looking especially sharp today, may I just say. Um, this is what I think you're referring to. This Absolutely. is a New Zealand swan dry. And I took to us? New Zealand swan dry, okay. S-W-A-N-D-R-I. Maybe two N's in it, I'm not sure. But basically, it's a bush shirt. Ah. Um, it, it, it's all woolen. It. Uh, has no zippers. It just has this up the front, and it's entirely wool. Um, when it gets wet, it gets heavy, but it keeps you warm. Um, it was used a lot uh, when I was there. It was used a lot by people working on farms and uh, in the bush, and you occasionally see, saw some around town, and always saw them in the smaller towns. And um, it's the most New Zealand thing I wear nowadays. I did have a small swan dry jacket, but it, it sort of got worn out. But um, the, well, I can see the appeal. It looks wonderful. The swan dry logo has disappeared off the label in the front pocket. Uh, it's faded, but it's it still works. Um, and this is what I was wearing outside this morning, th- this layer. Uh, it was about oh, probably... 33 to 40 Fahrenheit, which is probably about 1 to 5 degrees Celsius. And with a hat and gloves, I was fine walking around town briskly. And when I got home, I just... frozen before text got No freezing. And code freezes are good. Frozen dens are not. Exactly. And, but just sitting here in the office, it's been very comfortable, so I haven't bothered taking it off. Usually, I start taking gear off as soon as I get in, but this morning it was just comfy. <laughs> Wonderful. And we all get to benefit. Anything else new in your world or anything you want to say uh, before we jump in? The R710 is up and running. I oh. got that going over over the weekend. There's four SSDs in there, and I did a few tests, but nothing conclusive yet as to how to best set it up to build FreeBSD packages. I see. But it's still early days yet. Work in only progress. Run, only two test runs so far. Excellent. Well, congrats. That's uh, that's exciting. It should be a lot of fun to play with in the future. It is fun. I'm sure you will tweet about it. I shall. Excellent. Okay, well, let's jump in. We have a, a really exciting show today. There's lots of fun stuff to talk about. So, uh, first story. Imgur has had a notice of a data breach. What's Imgur. going on? I, I always called it Imgur. Yeah, that too. I... It, Okay. Just... Uh, no, no, you you may well be right. I mean, 
I've I never we'll heard just anyone cycle else through the pronunciations here, but, because yeah. uh, it's more fun that way. So, um, if you're not familiar with this website, I think it was set up for the sole purpose of displaying images for Reddit. I believe so. Or at least that's how it started. Yeah, as a compa- as a companion yeah. to Reddit. Yeah, so basically you would post something on Reddit, and if you don't know what Reddit is, you should go and look at reddit.com. It's the front page well, of the yeah. internet, I'm told. Techsnap.reddit.com. There we go. We'll just start them off. Oh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, 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 sorry. And um, basically what it does is it hosts photographs that then people can refer to in their posts on Reddit. It's used for a lot of other things as well, but mainly you see a lot of references to it from reddit.com. So, <clears throat> excuse me, what happened is there is a, a data breach. And what's interesting about this data breach is, A, when it happened, B, when they got notification, and C, how quickly they dealt with it. So, we'll sort of approach this in terms of this is a very good way to handle being notified about Excellent. being uh, breached. but. And then later on in the podcast, we'll contrast that with a very poor handling of a data notification of a breach. So, on November 23rd, Imager was notified of a potential security breach that occurred in 2014 that affected the email addresses and passwords of 1.7 million users. Now, one of the things that that I want to mention here is the date. This was November 23rd. Now, if you look at a calendar, that was five days ago. And if you're not American, you may not have been aware of the 23rd of, of November this year was Thanksgiving Day. And if you're not familiar with American culture, Thanksgiving is a hell of a big holiday. It's very family-oriented. It is the heaviest travel day of the year. That Wednesday before is the heaviest travel day of the year. Most of the country travels somewhere or does something on Thanksgiving. Okay. Absolutely. It is a major U.S. holiday. So they got notified of that issue on that day. It was in the afternoon of November 23rd, continuing on with the article. Not a great time for a notification. Not a great time for notifications. An email was sent to Imager by a security researcher. Troy Hunt, oh. who frequently who frequently deals with data breaches. And frequently, look at have I been pwned. He believed he was sent data that include, included information of Imager users. Our chief operating officer received the email late night on November 23rd, so in the evening. So, basically, he's had his turkey, he's had his beer, and he's been watching football Probably all day. taking a nap. This is a major holiday and immediately corresponded with the researcher to learn more about the potential breach. He simultaneously notified our founder, CEO, and vice president of engineering. Our VP of engineering then arranged to securely retrieve the data from the researcher and began work to validate that the data belonged to our users. Early morning on November 24th. Fourth, that's Friday. This is the day after Thanksgiving, which is often also a holiday for most of America. Yeah. Um, and by early morning, I'm interpreting that as being two or three a.m. I'm not interpreting that as being six or seven a.m. We confirmed that approximately 1.7 million imager user accounts were compromised in 2014. 
the compromised account information included only email addresses and passwords. Imager has never asked for real names, addresses, phone numbers, or other personally identifying information. So the information that was compromised did not include such information. So basically, it's it's email address and password. That's all that okay, was in yeah. the dump. And that's all that they could have gotten. Well, apart from other stuff. We are still, how did this happen? We're still investigating how the account information was compromised. We've always encrypted the passwords in our database, but have, may have been cracked with brute force due to an older hashing algorithm, SHA-256, that was used at that time. We updated our algorithm to the new Bcrypt oh. algorithm last year. Well, that's good to hear. So chances are most of most of the passwords will have been changed by then, I would hope. What steps are they taking? On the morning of November 24th, we began notifying the users via the registered email addresses. We immediately we are immediately requiring that those users update their passwords. We also published this public disclosure at 4 p.m. PST on Friday. So that's one, two, three, four days ago. What can you do? We recommend that you use a different combination of email and password for every site and application. Bingo. And they also and they also suggest please always use strong passwords and update them frequently. That last bit, not so much. It's sort of been proven lately that you don't really need to update them frequently. So that's how they dealt with it. But there's a lot more information in here. There's a lot more information in terms of how they handled it and what else they did. Um, and I found just basically the handling of it and the timeline much more interesting. Um, so what Threat Post posted was basically the, the same thing as what we've just covered. Um, they said it was a victim of a data breach. Um, but about two or three paragraphs down, they talk about Troy Hunt. Troy Hunt, who, who runs the data breach repository haveibeenpwned.com, is credited for tipping Imager off to the breach. Hunt, in a tweet, lauded Imager for its speedy handling of the breach notification. Hunt sent Imager flat text file with email address and password. And Troy says, I want to recognize their exemplary handling of this. That's 25 hours and 10 minutes from my initial email to a press address. To a press address. To them mobilizing people over Thanksgiving. Assessing the data. Beginning password resets. And making a public disclosure. So that's, you know, over a major holiday. It only took them 25 hours and 10 minutes from dealing with it to announcing it. So that that is very good. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another point. Out of the 1.75 million passwords and email addresses that he reported, 60% of them were already in the Have I Been Pwned repository. Wow. So they'd already gotten out somewhere or had been used somewhere by the people who were on Imager. So... Perhaps that data, <coughs> pardon me. So how that data get in there, we may not know. It may have been part of another release and not attributed to Imager, but this one was attributed to Imager. So um, now 
Troy mentioned that in his tweet. He talked about that. And someone right. said, why did it take them three years to actually disclose this? Well, they didn't know three years ago. They found out on Thanksgiving Day. So people aren't reading the whole article. They're just scrolling through the scrolling through the tweet list. Now, um, another uh, another tweet that I saw was um, they were wondering what's the correct year for the breach? Is it 2013 or 2014? Well, his earlier the earlier discussions indicated 2013, which they later revised to 2014, and. It's relatively inconsequential this much later anyway as to whether it was 2013 or 2014. It doesn't really matter. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, I mentioned Have I Been Pwned. Now, Firefox is coming up with a plugin. So you, you it will notify you if you're visiting a site that has been previously hacked and whether or not their login credentials have been involved in the data breach. Oh, really? That Now, that's yeah. really helpful. Now, do you remember we talked about an API for Have I Been Pwned? Yes, I do. I'm positive that's what they're yep. using here. That's that's fantastic. Boy, what a what a natural use case for this sort of data. Yeah, you type in username and password, it checks, checks the Have I Been Pwned. Oh, listen, you better not use this anymore because you're liable to get infiltrated yeah you know for the i try to rotate my passwords often but there's sites that i just don't visit very regularly but upon visiting if you can you know firefox pops this up i'm like perfect pull up your password manager switch everything out set it all up again and boom you're done yep and yeah i do use a password manager if you folks don't use a password manager you really should and later on in the podcast uh we're going to go over um some recommendations yeah. to keep yourself from being hacked. That's very interesting. Um, so, were you? I don't want to ask you personal questions, but I wasn't on Imager when this happened. I went back and looked at the first photograph I posted, and it was after it was 2015, I think. Yeah, so actually, I know same I'm for not me. in that bridge. Yeah, I've not checked yet, but I will be. Uh, but yeah, no, same same here. I've only I haven't actually had an account on there. For all that long so that's that's convenient in this one case i suppose yeah i use it mostly for posting photographs to reddit's home lab oh yeah absolutely Um, that's a great subreddit when i when i first started getting this rack and stuff i wanted to get some recommendations for how to set it up so i was posting in there for a while um it is a great it is a great uh reddit it is a great subreddit yeah handy I, w- I was struck by uh, another tweet example um, mm-hmm. from that thread post talked about here uh, from Jake Bird. Thank you for disclosing this so quickly. Better than a lot of companies that would rather try to hide and deny it. And I think that like that really summarizes yes. that these breaches happen. We have to just acknowledge that it's that is part of life. Unfortunately, security is never perfect. This can happen, and so this is a great case as as you were saying that you know they have minimal information in the database that that was breached, yep. and rather than try to you know. Not not disclose details. They were transparent about it. Did everything they could to notify users, get things fixed, patched up, um, or you know analyze if, if they needed to. It sounds like they have made a lot of improvements anyway since then. But good job, Imager. Uh, d- can we think of anyone in the news recently who was hacked and did not disclose it for several years despite knowing about it? I think we can. I 
think we can. Do you have anyone specific in mind? Uber. Right. Boy, that was actually pretty big news just just somewhat recently. Yep. Yep. That that was bad. That was bad. Right. And then uh, I mean companies also, Oh, go on. Th- that also breaks certain laws, doesn't it? I would I would think so. Not that that's I, I, new ground I, for I them. think I think you're required to disclose data breaches. I'm not sure about that. It is it is just frustrating too. Like you know, they they want your personal information, credit card information, all of that sort of thing. Yes. And if you yes. want to be a user of their service, you want to have faith that you know. I don't expect them to be perfect and not ever get breached, but I do expect that I'll mm-hmm. be notified in a timely way and that they'll be clear yep. about what they're doing to you know ensure that it's less likely to happen in the future. That's uh, it's interesting to see this. You know, a Reddit associated internet in- image hosting company doing a better job than some of these uh, you know huge tech companies that have presence all around the world. I want to know why um, can, can compare voluntarily giving your information to a website such as Imgur yep. with Equifax, where nobody gives their information to them. They hold it and then it gets breached. It gets breached. So they collect all this information and then it gets out there. You did not give it to them. They've collected it and bang, it's out there. Good job. No kidding. Anything else you want to add on this one before we uh, move on in today's show? Uh, no, that's all. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, now it's time for our first sponsor of the evening, DigitalOcean. Head on over to DigitalOcean.com. There you'll find cloud computing designed for developers. Maybe you don't have an imager account, or maybe for some, some reason you just, you know, you haven't felt like signing up, but you do still want to host files for others to consume on the public internet. My friends, DigitalOcean has a brand new product offering for you, Introducing Spaces, a beautifully simple and scalable object storage service. If you go to DigitalOcean.com, you can go learn more about that and a bunch more about all the services they have. Their new object object storage spaces, it's great. I've, I've used it a ton. It's really handy if you just want to generate some links to, to hosted content. They've got an incredibly easy-to-use API, S3 compatible, and that it's really just, this is a case study in all of their services. They got started with droplets. What are droplets? They're cloud-hosted VPS. They're a virtual private server, a VM of your own in the cloud, in a data center somewhere, ready for you to use for whatever means you want. And it's not like some of their competitive services. Competitive to DigitalOcean, it's, you got to sign up, you got to give them all the details in the whole world, and then there's a giant, crazy, crazy UI you have to navigate through. At DigitalOcean, it's all simple, straightforward, and easy to use. They have support in all the latest and greatest tools. You're probably already using things like things like Vagrant. There's a ton of great apps and command lines utilities to manage your droplets. I mean, we interface with we interface with droplets all the time here at JB, so you should too. I, it's really one of the APIs that's... It, it's an example in great API design, and it's an example in great dashboard design. They've got this incredible, easy-to-use dashboard, a dashboard that you won't come to hate. And they've got simple and easy-to-understand pricing. Some of their competitors, you have to go dig deep, find third-party tools to try to calculate what you might be spending in a month. It's all, it's all right here, simple and easy-to-use. Prices start at just $5 a month. And if you use our promo code, yeah, that's right, SNAPOcean, all one word, SNAPOcean, you'll get a $10 credit. That's good for two months of this $5 a month droplet. You get 512 MB of RAM, one virtual CPU, and it's no slouch. It's a, it's a fast little processor there, and 20 gigs of all SSD disk. 
DigitalOcean was one of the first to jump on the SSD bandwagon, and it's really shown they understand the advantage. You won't have any of these old spinning rust drives sitting around. New no, sir. And a whopping one terabyte of transfer. This is premium transfer, super fast connections all over the world. They've got data centers all over the world. So find one near you, spin up a droplet, start playing with it. They've got like one-click installs of a ton of software you might want to use. Want to go set up a WordPress? Boom, done. One-click install. And they've got operating systems from Container Linux to FreeBSD. So you can be sure that the system you want to run is almost certainly on DigitalOcean. If not, you'll probably find a tutorial to install it. They've got an incredible community section of real users, and then they've hired real editors. They pay them to take these community contributions and turn them into some of the finest documentation available on the internet. If you haven't already run into an article, if you're searching for something Linux or FreeBSD related, you'll have a good chance of running into a tutorial about how to get started with that on DigitalOcean. And sure, those guides are great for not DigitalOcean too, but why would you not? I mean, if you want to just play around, install a new blog, get started with Ghost, or playing around with Node.js, DigitalOcean is perfect for that. So head on over to DigitalOcean.com, use our promo code, SNAPOcean, and go make something cool. Make sure you tell us about it. Thank you, DigitalOcean, for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, Dan, well, we must roll on today. Lots of fun stuff to talk about. This article is not so fun, and it really is an example of what not to do. Yes. Uh, Contrast this with what happened with Imager. Um, In in this case, there's a chap who um, happened to be interested in, um, in drones, the little quadcopters that fly around. And he uh, started looking around DJI, which is a Chinese company that manufactures the popular phantom brand of consumer quadcopter drones. Basically, he discovered that their developers had left the private keys for both the wildcard certificate for all the company's web domains and the keys to cloud storage accounts on Amazon Web Services exposed publicly in code posted to GitHub. Now, that's pretty serious. Like, that's everything you need to run everything they have. So, using this data, the researcher, Kevin Finestra, was able to access flight log data and images uploaded by DJI customers, including photos of government IDs, driver's licenses, and passports. Some of the data included flight logs from accounts associated with government and military domains. So not only is it personal data, it might also be sensitive uh, security information. So he found the security error 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 after beginning to probe DJI's systems under their bug bounty program, which was announced in August. But as he continued to document the bug with the company, he got increasing pushback, including a threat under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the CFAA. So DJI refused to offer any protection against legal action in the company's final offer for the data. So he dropped out of the... program entirely and published his findings publicly yesterday, along with a narrative entitled, Why I Walked Away from $30,000 of DJI Bounty Money. And we've included a link to that PDF in the show notes. So 
how did this happen? Like generally a security researcher will approach someone and say, hey, listen, we've got this problem here. And they say, oh, okay, well, tell us more. And they come to an agreement. But that doesn't sound like this is what happened no. here. So DJI launched its bug bounty problem bounty this fall shortly after the u.s army issued a ban on using their drones for any military purpose due to quote operational security unquote oh. concerns now that's that's not trivial no it's there, not there were also spreading reports of people hacking the firmware of the drones some have even posted hacks to github now but according to uh, the researcher, the program was clearly rushed out. The company did not and has not yet defined the scope of the bounty program publicly. So when he discovered that the SSL search and the firmware AES encryption keys had been, been exposed <coughs> pardon, on GitHub, in some cases for as long as four years, and wow. that's probably how they got cut to ha hack the firmware. He contacted the company to see if its servers were, were within the scope of the bug bounty program. He was told they were, a statement that would later be walked back from by GGI officials. So he ran another GitHub search and discovered the AWS private keys. So for, first he found the SSL search and the AES encryption keys, and then he found the private keys for GG, DJI's, have I been saying DGI, DJI's SkyPixel photo sharing service. He also learned that some of those accounts were publicly accessible and the buckets included all attachments to the service emails, receipts, personal data, and occasional photos of people cut by props. So after his initial inquiry, he didn't hear back about the scope of the program for more than two weeks. He sent a follow-up email and received a message saying, for the scope, I'm quoting, for the scope, the bug bounty program covers all the security issues in firmware, application and servers, including source code leak, security workaround, privacy issue. We are working on a detailed user guide for it. So, okay. Based on that, he started uh, documenting what, what he had found in the disclosure report. And that's when he discovered personally identifying information. That's got to be the passports and the driver's licenses. In light of that, he gave the company an immediate heads up on the exposure um, via a friend at DJI with a better technical understanding than the people I was dealing with. So he was contacted by another DJI employee a few, few hours later. He informed this representative that he had, had the unencrypted flight logs, the passports, the driver's license, etc. He continued to communicate with this, with this employee in a long line of, line of education on basic security concepts and bug bounty practices. And it was over 130 emails. Okay. So at one point, they even offered to hire me to consult with them on this, their security. So this is back and forth communication over the, this. Um, so when he submitted his full report on the exposure to the bug bounty program, he received an email from DJI saying that the company's servers were suddenly not in scope for the bounty program. This is bait and switch. Why would you say they were, then receive the full report and say, oh, no, they're not? So I have no idea why they would change, but on the face of it, it sounds like they changed their, uh, their mind after they got the, the data of the issue. So, 
But despite that, he received notifications from the bug biting program that his report earned the top reward for the program, $30,000 in cash. Then he heard nothing for nearly a month. He, he received an email containing an agreement contract that he said did not offer researchers any sort of protection. In short, thank you for this information. We're not going to sue you. Here's your cash. That's, uh, basically, yeah. that's basically what it should boil down to. So he did not. So, so for him personally, the wording put my right to work at risk posed a direct conflict of interest to many things, including his freedom of speech. And it seemed clear to him that the entire bug bounty program was rushed based on this alone. So he continued to, to communicate with the, with the DJI's Chinese legal department. Things did not approve. He soon received a letter from the legal department demanding that he destroy all data he had uncovered in his research or face prosecution under the CFAA. So now, basically, instead of saying, thank you, here's your reward, they're threatening him. Then a final offer arrived. No less than four lawyers told him in various ways that the agreement was not only extremely risky, but was likely crafted in bad faith to silence anyone that signed it. Wow. Gen generally, when you, as a security researcher, your, your goal is to get your name out there. No one is someone who does good work. Right. That gets you jobs. That gets you more work. Um, if you can't talk about the stuff that you've found, it puts a damper on the goal to do further work. It, mo most people say, "Yeah, sure, you're you're allowed to talk about this after we fix it." You know, responsible disclosure is what that falls under. Um, ARS, Ars Technica, that's the site we're reading from, right. reached out to DJI's corporate communication director for North America for comment. He responded by referring to us to the official statement issued on November 16th. The langu language calls the researcher a hacker. DJI is investigating, this is the quote, DJI is investigating the reported unauthorized access of one of DJI's servers containing personal information submitted by our users. As part of its commitment to customers' data security, DJI engaged a, an independent cybersecurity firm to investigate this report and the impact of any unauthorized access to that data. Today, a hacker who obtained some of this information posted online his confidential communications with DJI employees about his attempts to claim a bug bounty from the DJI Security Response Center. DJI implemented its Security Response Center to encourage independent security researchers to responsibly report potential vulnerabilities. Sorry, I'm quite sure that that's what he did. DJI asks researchers to follow standard terms for bug bounty programs, which are designed to protect confidential data and allow time for analysis and resolution of a vulner vulnerability. I have trouble with that word. Before it's public, before it is publicly disclosed, the hacker in question refused to agree to these terms, despite DJI's continued attempts to negotiate with them and threatened DJI if his terms were not met. So, that's the end of the quote. Granted, we have this version and we have the other version. <clears throat> but 
Make of it what believe. you will, but yeah, exactly. Um, it, reading into some of the motivations on either side, it's somewhat clear, I suppose. Yeah. So, in the statement, DJI claims to have paid out thousands of dollars to almost a dozen researchers since the program was launched. The terms of the bug bounty program posted by DJI exclude, quote, third-party websites or services, including third-party software in- incorporated in DJI applications. That's fair enough. If you find a bug in PHP... It, right, that's their it, problem. Not necessarily, I mean, yeah. everyone's problem, but uh, not necessarily yeah, bug bounty. But it's, yeah, but it's not... You're not helping DJI. And bug submissions, though it is not clear whether these terms were communicated to the researcher prior to his work. And bug submissions through the Bug Bounty Program's official email address were shut down as of yesterday, as per this bounce-back message received by ARS. Please note that starting 2017-11-16, we will no longer be accepting bug reports through this email. If you have any questions, please contact us at bugbounty at dji.com, and we'll get back to you shortly. So, if you want to submit bug bounties to DJI, you can through the security website. You go there, you click on the link, you click on report a bug, and they want you to log in. So you can log in with Facebook or Google or create your DJI account. <laughs> now, why you have to create a DJI account, I'm not sure. This seems re- really odd. Yeah, it Just does. give us an email address that we can send. Email, publish your email address that pe- security researchers sh- should use to get in contact with you. Yes, absolutely. Include a, a, an encryption key they can use, and that's all you need to do. Yeah, Just make it simple, in- no barriers, easy to use, easy to easy to. You know, you want these reports if you're, especially if you're, at least you yes. should, if you're running one of these programs, it seems like you would recognize that this is mm-hmm. valuable. It helps everyone um, mm-hmm. and can, you know, make your users safer and your product better. DGI clearly do not listen to this podcast. Otherwise, they would have heard us recommend the example set forth by Tesla, which yeah. is very straightforward, very simple. Non-coders and non-lawyers could read it and understand it and know what to do. Very well said. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, moving right along, we've got our next sponsor this evening, which is our friends over at Ting. Head on over to techsnap.ting.com and you'll find a smarter way to do mobile. If you've ever signed up with one of those big nationwide carriers and you felt like you were signing your life away... You know, putting the next two years somewhere on paper, deciding in advance how many minutes you're going to use per month, how much data you expect to use, knowing that you'll probably never use that full amount, maybe once or twice within that whole two-year period. My friends, there is a better way. Ting is mobile that makes sense. And really, the primary reason about that is it's it's simple, it's no-nonsense, and it's pay for what you use. Yeah, what? I know, it sounds too good to be true, but it's pay for what? you use. It's the way that the whole mobile industry should already be. I don't know why it's not. And it's just a system that makes sense. So to get started, each line is $6 a month. After that, your usage puts you in one of these fancy buckets. You can just click and see. So my usage, I don't, I don't call that too many people. And if so, they're short calls. That's just, let's say you get 100 minutes for $3. Now, how many text messages do you use? I hope that's none. For me, that's none. But maybe there's a little spillage. You know, your aunt or uncle, especially around the holidays, they're sending you a text message, perhaps. Boom, $3. Not a big deal. And then you just pay for your data. If you're savvy, 
you're a Wi-Fi savvy person, if you don't have really long commutes or maybe you're on a bus with Wi-Fi, you probably have Wi-Fi in your office. You probably have Wi-Fi at home. So however much data you want to use, not judging here, I try to save my data, but you can use as much data as you want. And that's one of the things about Ting. However much you use, it can vary from month to month. If there's some months where you use none, there's a couple months during the summer while you're out and about and you use a whole bunch, that works perfectly on Ting because it's pay for what you use. So if you're, if you're a light user, your monthly bill would be about $22 a month. Yeah, that's right. And when you go to techsnap.ting.com, you'll get a $25 service credit after you sign up. So that'll probably pay for your whole first month's bill, or at least most of it. The other nice thing here is there's no overage charges. It doesn't work like that. You just you use more. Ting tells you exactly what the rate is going to be. They've got buckets for the first couple levels. And if you're a big power user, they've got just one rate to know for any of that advanced usage. So if you go over, you know, if you go over two gigabytes, they've got a per gigabyte amount. It's super simple. It's super easy. You can budget ahead if you want to, or you just pay for what you use. You don't have to get locked into a contract and you'll still get all the features you want. Tethering? Oh yeah, there's tethering. It's just data. Use the data, pay for the data. Simple, mature, easy. But you've got other things, you know, three-way calling, voicemail, etc. All the standard stuff you'll find. What you won't find are contracts and early termination fees. And you won't find long wait times on hold. When you call Ting customer support, you'll get real people ready to talk to you. No transfers, no holds. You just call, get a person, talk to them, and they will get your problem resolved. The other really great thing about Ting is you probably won't have to call anyone because they're so simple. They've got a great dashboard, amazing dashboard. You can pretty much do anything you need on your account, activate, deactivate, change different amounts of service. And they've got an incredible app too. So if you've already got a mobile device, setting up for Ting, changing other phones, settings on Ting, it's so simple. They support both GSM and CDMA, which is another factor that makes Ting somewhat unique in the industry. You can get a SIM card for just about $9. Just head over to their shop uh, you know, if you don't end up using that service discount on your plan, you can also use it in their shop. You can bring your own device, no problem. They've got an IM, IMEI checker available, or go buy the latest and greatest from Ting right at ting.com slash shop. Oh, wait, no, that's techsnap.ting.com. Go check it out. Go get that service discount with our magic URL and go save some money on mobile. Everyone I've recommended to Ting really just loves that they've got great customer reviews across the board go see what everyone else has already learned. TechSnap.ting.com All right, Mr. Dan, here's here's some time in the show where uh, maybe we'll try to give the users, the viewers, everyone else out there some practical advice. At least it seems like that's what Motherboards tried to do with their article, The Motherboard Guide to Not Getting Hacked. Well, I don't want to get hacked, so uh, hmm, sounds nice. Now, I forget how I came across this guide. Uh, I actually wasn't familiar with Motherboard, so I asked around, and some people said, yeah, they're pretty good. They do a lot of their own research, and they're usually right. But it was also pointed out that not everyone agrees with Motherboard. Uh, So I included uh, a link in the show notes to where someone says, um, basically, uh, everything true that's in Motherboard's security guide is also in the tech's solidarity guide, and we'll we'll provide a link there, too. Now... um, but to be fair, uh, Bruce, we all know who, who we mean when we say Bruce. Bruce uh, also says it's it's a pretty good guide as well. So I'm going to go through um, this one motherboard guide, but also in the show notes, they have other security guides, which we didn't have time to cover. 
but people should follow the link because there's some interesting guides in there that you may find very useful. So I'm going to try and rush through this because there's a lot of stuff in here. Um, basically, do you want to stop criminals from getting into your Gmail or Facebook account? Yes. Yes, I do. Are you, are you worried about the cops spying on you? Oh, my gosh, yes. We have all the answers on how to protect yourself. Hey, yo. So, one of the questions we get asked most often at Motherboard is, how can I prevent myself from being attacked? being hacked because living in modern society necessitates putting an uncomfortably large amount of trust in third parties the the often is often the answer is often not a whole lot take for example i and i mentioned this before the massive equifax hack that affected nearly half of the american population few people voluntarily signed up for the service and yet their information was stolen so uh, the, scrolling down a bit, this guide is, isn't comprehensive and it's not personalized. There is no such thing as perfect security and there is no one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we hope this will be a jumping-off point for people looking to batten down the hatches on their digital lives. Now, um, I had a reference here about why this... Yeah, basically... What you should do first is go to the Electronic Frontier Foundation and go through their guide, Assessing Your Risks. Um, there's a link to it in the show notes. And basically, different people have different risks. If you're just Joe Citizen sitting at home, minding your own business, that's a very different threat model to, say, being a politician or being an activist Absolutely. or being involved in uh, throwing over a regime entirely different so judge accordingly not all of what we say may make sense for you but i'm trying to be general here exactly so threat modeling everything in this guide starts with threat modeling which is hacker lingo hacker lingo for assessing how likely it is you are to get hacked or surveilled so are you trying to defend against someone opportunistic who just downloads your details uh, from another website when they're broken in there, or are they directly targeting you? Exactly. Two entirely different situations. If you get if you get spam and you click on the link, they're not actually attacking you personally. They're just looking for anyone that'll click on the link. So and we will uh, summarize the EFF uh, um, threat modeling. What do you want to protect? Who do you want to protect it from? How likely is it that you will need to protect it? How bad are the consequences if you fail? And how much trouble you trouble are you willing to go through in order to prevent all of that from happening? So, an example. Is your threat an ex who might want to go through your Facebook account? Simple way to solve that. Make sure they don't know your password. Yeah. Don't share crucial passwords with people, no matter who they are. I don't share passwords with anyone. Sometimes I give them the Wi-Fi password, but they can't get anywhere but out on the Internet with that Wi-Fi password. They can't get into the network here behind me. Right. So if you're talking Netflix, make sure you never reuse that password anywhere else. You might want to share it out. Um, uh, try not to keep your birthday on the Internet. Hard to do, like, but uh, yeah, good advice. Yeah, hard to do. Uh, 
I fake it by always using November 1st, despite the ah. fact that my birthday's in November. I always, anywhere, anywhere on the websites that need it, it's November 1st. And you can judge how good of a friend someone is by uh, when they say happy birthday to you. Right. So, if you're an activist, a journalist, or otherwise have reason to fear government, state, or law enforcement actors who want to hack or surveil you, the steps you must take are significantly different if you're just trying to keep plans for a surprise party secret from your best friend. Entirely different. And overestimating your threat can be a a problem, too. I, I like this one. If you start using obscure custom operating systems, virtual machines, or anything else technical that's really not necessary or you don't know how to use it, you're probably wasting your time and might be putting yourself at risk. So, on to the tips. Keep your apps up to date. Patch your shit, there we is go. what we yep, said. Exactly. Probably the most important and basic thing you can do to protect yourself is to update the software you use to its newest version. Do that as soon as the updates come out. So, and what they say, if you come away w- with one lesson from this guide, update, 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 or patch, patch, patch. Stay up to date because that the, the vast majority of infiltrations and breaches are because of known vulnerabilities in software that have not been fixed on your machine. That's that's what all this malware and spam is trying to take advantage of is known. Sorry, the vast majority of malware and spam is trying to take advantage of known vulnerabilities that have not been fixed on your computer. If it's been fixed, nothing will happen. Presumably that that's the theory. So jumping ahead. Well, one more thing. I like this line. Hacking is often a path of least resistance. You go after the easy, soft targets first. For example, the hackers behind the destructive ransomware known as WannaCry hit victims who had not applied a security update that had been available for weeks. There we go. Not for days or hours, but for weeks. In other words, they knew they were going to get in because the victims had not changed the lock to the door, even though their keys had already been made available to everyone. So, patch your shit. So, on to the next recommendation. Passwords. Do not reuse your passwords. Because if a hacker gets control of your Netflix or Spotify password, they can use it to get into your ride-sharing or bank account and to drain your credit card. Exactly. There you go. The good news is the solution to this is a password manager. Use a password manager and then use a very good password to get into that password manager. So make a passphrase, several random but pronounceable and thus easier to memorize passwords. For example, and don't use this one, (laughs) floodlit, siesta, kirk, barrel, amputee, dice. Something like that. Just make it up so that you can remember it. Yeah, right. I mean, here you're you're trading, you know, having to remember individual passwords for one huge master yes. password. So yes. you should have an easier time, less to remember. Put that effort here. Ensure it has yes. you know, high entropy, lots mm-hmm. of stuff going on there. Mm-hmm. And pronounceable is really good. You can find some pronounceable password generators and other tools available. Yes. Um, so go check those out. Or even just a memorable phase. Like, I really like chocolate ice cream because I once had it with Susan. (laughs) That's perfectly fine as a passphrase. 
Just don't tell anyone that yeah, passphrase. Right, yeah. And don't ever, use that ever. one. Don't use that one either. Um, now, one of the points they make here, which, which is very important intuitively, you might think it's unwise to store your passwords on your computer or with a third-party password manager. What if a hacker gets in? Well, you're not better off keeping all of that in your head. The risk of a crook reusing a shared password that has been stolen from somewhere else is far greater than some sophisticated, and it would have to be sophisticated, hacker independently targeting your database of passwords. For example, if you use the same password across different websites and that password is stolen in the massive Yahoo hacks, which included 3 billion people, it could easily be re reused on your Gmail, Uber, Facebook, and other websites. Again, low-hanging fruit. Exactly. They're going to they're gonna try your passwords everywhere else. That's all they're going to do. So use a password manager. There's lots of them out there. Yeah, I like Next. that. I like that this doesn't, you know, it's not too, it gives you some options. It's not prescriptive about yes. the password manager because, yeah. you know, while it is worthwhile to discuss the merits of different password managers, really yes. you get 90% of the protection from just using one at all. Don't get bogged down in that. The other thing I would I would suggest is looking for a password manager that allows you to export the passwords. Yes, so you can switch services later if you need to. Now, some people consider that a security issue because what if someone invokes that? I think that's much lower risk than having... Reasonable trade-off. Yes. Next topic, two-factor authentication. Basically, what is two-factor authentication? Basically, you type in your username and password. It says, oh... Well, you also have to give us this code as well. So basically that code is something you know. Uh, it Sometimes people use two-factor authentication by sending you an email or sending you a text message. But what I like much better is uh, tokens, like two-factor authentication, uh, such as Google Auth. There's a lot of um, applications out there now, other than just Google Auth, where Basically, they display a six-digit number, and those numbers change over time. Uh, and what, what is going on there is basically there's a shared secret. The website knows the secret. You know the secret. And you both know what number will appear at a given time. That, it's just very simple and random. Uh, SMS-based two-factor authentication uh, text messages – not quite as secure as, as that token-based method. So if you can, you use Google Auth or Authy or what, what were the other ones? Uh, there's a whole lot. Yeah, there's a, there whole lot. a whole lot. You can go. I, I, I like Authy. I also like 2SP, but I think 2SP has uh, now been withdrawn. Oh, Basically right. because the guy got a job with Apple. But, yeah. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, Google <laughs> Authenticator is also a popular one that's used by, by a, a large number of companies. So go find something that works for you and your use cases that's supported by the sites that you interact with. Mm -hmm. And this is a great option, especially for you know sites that have your personal information or other details, financial details. It's a simple way to stay more secure. Yep. Um the, the next series of topics that we're going to go over is sometimes controversial. Uh, you decide. It says don't use Flash. Well, I wind up using Flash from time to time. Uh, 
It's a, yeah, good. It, it's nice to stay away from it. Um, not everyone has that luxury yet. Let's let's hope yet. Yep. Now, um, use antivirus or some sort of malware scanner. Now, it used to be very very popular. I'm not using it. Don't target me. <laughs> but there are there are definite uses. Um, they mentioned Kaspersky. Kaspersky Labs? I don't know. Yeah. Um, do use some simple security plugins in your browsers. Um, ad blockers. A lot of people are using ad blockers, and I use, uh, what is it, SiteBlock, IOBlock, Origin, something Origin, uh, UBlock Origin. Yep. It, it, it is in the show notes. I use UBlock Origin. It's on my Chrome browser. Um, I tend to use Chrome all the time. Um, they also talk about uh, using a plugin called HTTPS Everywhere, which just basically makes sure that your connection is always HTTPS if the website supports it. Uh, they mention VPNs. They mention disabling uh, Microsoft Office macros. And they say backup. Backup your stuff. Do anything you can to have multiple copies of your files in multiple places and do that regularly. Um, yeah, they exactly. talk about they talk about not posting stuff on social media that may be sensitive, such as your boarding pass. Um, Great example. Um, don't open attachments from people you don't know, and even then, be wary of opening attachments. Um, they give some suggestions in here about how you can uh, handle attachments when they come in. Um, then they go on to talk about mobile threats. People use passcodes, passwords, or patterns to lock their phones. If you don't do this, you absolutely should. In other words, don't don't allow someone to just pick up your phone and start using it. They have access to all your email. They can send email. They can read all your email. Don't do it. So, And what they mention here is patterns are far easier to guess or shoulder surf than pins or passcodes, according to a recent study. Now, the biggest mobile threat is someone who has physical access to your phone and can unlock it. So be aware of that. Now, one of the things that, that I remember being mentioned is that if you're in a public place, be very careful when you unlock your phone. That's why I like the thumbprint or the fingerprint instead, because no one can really see what that is. Um, and you can disable that. The next bit of advice from them will anger some people, and it'll get some people upset. It already has. But, yeah, we'll show you. Get an iPhone, they say. Pretty much everyone in the world of cybersecurity, except per perhaps the engineers working on Android, believes that iPhones are the most secure cell phone you can get. There's a few reason why. There's a few reasons why, but the main ones are that iOS, Apple's mobile operating system, is extremely locked down. Apps go through extensive checks before getting onto the App Store, and there are extensive security measures in place, such as the fact that only code approved and digitally signed by Apple, and the fact that apps are are limited from reaching into other apps. These features make it really hard for attackers for hackers to attack the most sensitive parts sensitive parts of the operating system. And Apple is very good at, uh, at um, 
updating iOS when there's bugs, and security updates for many Android devices can take weeks or months to be pushed to users. And they point out that even the iPhone S, which launched in 2013, is still supported. 2013, that's four years. Possibly five, possibly four and a half, closer to five, depending on when the iPhone S came out. So, basically, if you are paranoid, the iPhone is the most secure cell phone out of the box. But unless you have a really good reason for it, do not jailbreak it. Jailbreaking bypasses all all of that security. Don't jailbreak your iPhone. Okay. Now, the other side. But I love Android. Fine. What do you do? They say your best bet is to stick to Pixels or Nexus phones whose security doesn't depend on anyone but Google. If you really don't want a Google phone, they give a list of cell phones that have a good track record of pushing security updates, according to Google itself. Whatever Android phone you install, be careful what apps you install. Uh, There have been many malicious apps found in the Play Store, so think twice about installing a little-known app or double-check that the app you're installing is really the one you want. Yes. Why do we mention that? Earlier this fall, a fake version of WhatsApp was installed by more than one million Android users. Yikes. Stick to the Play Store and avoid downloading and installing apps from third-party stores, which may very well be malicious. Uh, And on most Android phones, installing third-party apps is not enabled by default. Leave it that way. So the other thing, to protect the data on your Android iPhone, make sure full disk encryption is enabled. So... Yeah, you know, it's an option we've had now for a little while. And if you have mm-hmm. that feature, like, yeah, just just do it. Uh, they've worked out most mm-hmm. of the performance kinks involved, so there's really no downside. Yep. Now, here is an interesting example of why metadata is very revealing. Surveillance law is complicated, but long story short, both the law and current tech technological infrastructure make it easier to grab metadata than content. So what sort of metadata? What can they learn? Here's a very feasible example. Metadata isn't necessarily less important or revealing than content. Say Planned Parenthood called you. Then you call your partner. Then you call your insurance. Then you call the abortion clinic. That information is going to be on your phone bill, and your telephone provider can easily give it up to the government. Your cell provider might not be recording these calls. The content is still private, but at that point, the content doesn't matter. It would be easy for anyone with the metadata alone to have a reasonable idea of what your calls were about. Now, that's an extreme example, but... This is why met, revealing metadata is so sensitive. Yeah, you know, I think it can be difficult for people at times. It feels a little abstract to understand, like, yeah, what is the real significant? But, yeah, even if extreme, this is a great example of, yep. of there can be real information, in, you know, inferred there. Uh, you should guard it, you should guard yep. it carefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, they actually, say, they actually state that they do not recommend WhatsApp. They prefer iMessage, but iMessage encrypts end-to-end, but it also backs up cloud uh, messages to iCloud, which is why you can message from all your devices. But right. anyway, so 
there are worse products to use than iMessage and WhatsApp. For example, you should avoid using telecom, Telegram for sensitive comms. You can read more into that in, in the article here. I'm just trying to highlight the, the main points here now because there's so much in here. Um, even if you keep your privacy settings on lockdown, in other words, you only allow Facebook posts to be seen by friends, social media companies are subject to subpoenas, court order, orders, and data requests for your information. And oftentimes, they'll fork over the information without ever notifying you that it's happening. For the purposes of social media, assume that everything you post is public. doesn't mean you should stop using it. Just be careful or mindful of how you use it. So, yeah. I don't post anything exactly sensitive on Facebook, but I do have it locked down so that only my friends see most posts. So, what other things you can do? Uh, stickers over your cameras on, on your laptop or, or smartphone, even when you're not using it. Um, uh, the EFF sells removable laptop cover stickers, five for five bucks, that don't leave a, leave a residue. Um, Lock screen. Use a password passcode. Don't rely on your thumbprint alone. Uh, make sure you have both because you may have a stronger constitutional right not to speak your pass password. Uh, also, I know that iPhones, if you press the power button, the power button or the on-off button five times quickly, uh, you, the, pass, the, the thumbprint, fingerprint will no longer work after in a, in a passcode. That, can, that may be useful to you one day. Uh, they talk about Tor, which will give you a big privacy boost, but don't, for example, try to stream Netflix over Tor. Um, Netflix is already big on, on personal privacy, and I think most of the stuff is streaming over HTTPS now anyway. Um, uh, for the purposes of state surveillance, Tor is better than a VPN, and a VPN is better than nothing, mainly because VPN uh, logs can be sequestered. Uh, Sequested, requested, subpoenaed. When it comes to state surveillance, VPNs won't help much. A VPN will obscure your IP address. But when it comes to state surveillance, VPNs can be subpoenaed for user information that will yep. that may ad ultimately identify it. You're paying by credit card, etc. Um, I find it interesting that they say PGP probably isn't worth it. Yeah, that is an interesting consideration. Although I think perhaps given the audience of this guide, it's not that it's yes. not use useful for some folks. I would say yeah. that for VPNs as well, there are reasons to use mm -hmm. VPN in some situations, mm -hmm. but don't yeah. consider it some you know catch-all security blanket that just, yeah. just won't work that, that way. One thing you can do, most operating systems now allow you to encrypt your hard drive so it can't be read without you logging in. I just did that to my laptop last night. Oh, did it, you? Nice. Yeah, file vault wasn't turned on. I turned it on. Excellent. Um, credit cards. Know that credit card companies never stand up to the government. If you pay for anything using your credit card, know that the government can get that information pretty easily. And remember that once your identity touches something, there's a chain that the government can follow all the way back. And they go on to talk about burner phones and stuff like that. Or basically... It's very difficult to pay for anything with a credit card and not have it come back to you. Now, contrast that with the ACLU and the NAACP. They have a constitutional right to resist giving up the names of donors, but your credit card or PayPal might betray you anyway. 
This doesn't mean you shouldn't donate to organizations that resist oppression and fight for civil rights and civil liberties. Rather, it makes all the more important that you do so. The more ordinary people that contribute to these organizations, the more that individual donors are protected from scrutiny and suspicion. If everybody's donating to them, it doesn't make you stand out. It's a normal thing to do. I donate to ACLU, and I recommend that others do as well. Um, scrolling down through here, then it goes on to a little bit of what journalists should do and stuff like that. But they're an entirely different circumstances from what the rest of us are. Um, that's all we're going to cover in here. I recommend that people go through it and read the whole thing and decide which ones apply to them. Not all of them will. Some of them may. Uh, and there's other guides in here that you should look at. Those are in the show notes. Um, and go through the EFF.org assessing your risks yes. and see what's important to you. But we've covered a heck of a lot of stuff just in there. And it's probably too much to take in all in one go. So read it. Yeah, read high it level again later. You have to go spend some time, dig in, set aside an afternoon to go, you know, consider your security posture. Mm -hmm. It's a great mm -hmm. use for a rainy Saturday. Uh, go change a bunch of passwords, set up a password manager, kind of audit, review. I know a lot of people you can, you know, a, a side benefit of a password manager is it also creates a list of all the accounts that you have. Yes. A lot of times you yes. forget that, oh, yes, I do have an account over it. So and so I used it once to buy a Christmas present 10 years ago or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a, there's a lot of good things to be gained. And when you hear of a security breach, you say, oh, do I have an account there? Your password manager will tell you. Exactly. Um, yeah, anything else you want to add? There's a lot. I really particularly liked the guide uh, linked in our show notes over at techsolidarity.org. Yes. Um, mostly, that, I mean, that one is interesting. The, a lot of the same advice, uh, but really presented in a, uh, if you don't want to do a deep dive or you just want to have a handy review checklist to look at, this is just a no-nonsense, uh, not crazily formatted. You just kind of review a list of don'ts, a list of do's. Pretty simple to understand. I love that. Yes. All right. Well, uh, as we just covered... You're going to want backups. If you're concerned at all about security, you're going to want backups. And you know what? You're just going to need some storage for that. There's no other way around it. We all have 1,001 pictures now, especially with smartphones everywhere. You have important data, maybe you know several gigs, maybe terabytes of data. That depends on you. Whatever size your backup solution needs, ixsystems.com is the place to go. Head on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. There you'll find a premier hardware retailer like no one else. Whether you need storage, servers, or a custom solution for your business, all powered by open source, IX Systems is the place to beat. In particular, if you want to get started with backups, you're trying to improve your security, you're trying to get, you know, get your systems put together this year, 2017 is the year to do it, get your backups done, have multiplications, a great way to start is with the FreeNAS Mini. FreeNAS Mini, you, you may have heard of the popular FreeNAS software, it's open source technology, you can deploy it at home if that's what you want to do, I think that's a great option, but... You're probably pretty busy if you're like if you're like Dan and myself. You're definitely busy, and you maybe you don't have time for that. The FreeNAS Mini is perfect. You get all the power of that software in IX's premium, built for the service hardware. They've spent a huge amount of time, a number of years, figuring out what works with hot swap bays and super reliable motherboards, cases, cooling, low power usage, and all tuned perfectly right out of the box. It'll show up, plug it in, ready to go, get started. 
configure it, set it up. You can, you know, Freenas has a ton of easy options for exposing your 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 shares. If you want to, you know, provide NF, or, you know, network aware storage for your network NAS type solutions. Maybe you just want to have reliable backups. You can be sure it's all based on the powerful ZFS operating system. Operating system, what am I saying? File system. IX Systems works with the OpenZFS project. They know about ZFS. They're experts. They have people on staff who've been fighting with it, battling, creating amazing storage solutions for years. They've got experts there and a team of super talented white glove sales engineers ready to take your phone call, talk to you human to human about what your problems might be, whether that's just configuring a FreeNAS or you know, getting us getting a bid for a, a new data center that you're building, it doesn't matter. They work with some of the, you know, some of the largest companies out there. If you go to their homepage, you'll really see some of the people that they work with. People like Sony, Disney, NASA, UC Berkeley, people with huge data problems. They've also got servers. So maybe you need a new server. Maybe you're looking to invest in some bare metal. You want to set up, you want to set up a KVM server with ZFS as the file system. I think that's a great idea. IX Systems has got you covered there. Plus, IX, not only do they have incredible hardware and partners with Intel and their incredible Intel processors to, to create just the fastest, most powerful machines you're ever likely to see, they also have a great, great presence in the community. They've been around through dot-com bubbles and bursts. They're going to be around for the future. So you know that you'll have support when you need it. You won't be kept on hold. You won't have to deal with horribly designed websites or not being able to talk to a person or really just feel like a cog in a horrible business machine. No, you're going to get people who are excited about technology and are excited about helping you solve problems. One more thing, you should definitely go check out their blog. They've got a great, a lot of great, cool social media presence. They're at all the conferences. They have a presence in open source. They maintain several open source projects themselves. They were just recently at LISA 2017, the large installation system administration conference. And they were and they were also just at uh, you know several BSD conferences, OpenZFS Developer Summit. They get around and they also have ooh, they have the server envy post. So from time to time they post some of the systems they build for for themselves to test out for some of their clients. And you will be drilling. Don't now make sure you're not standing over a server because you wouldn't want to damage it. I'm sure IX could get it repaired for you, but go check that out. You'll be really pleased. And I think it'll show you why IX is the place to beat for your next hardware purchase. Head on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And thank you to IX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And that brings us to the feedback segment. And that's right. It's the time in the show where we get to hear from you. Our fantastic audience. First up, we've got a letter from Gorin, writing about tape drives and jails. Hey guys, thanks for all the cool show topics lately, and reading some of my previous questions. But I got a few more, no problem. First off, tape stuff. How can I connect a tape drive to backup data from a computer or a server? I see some old drives have only iSCSI interfaces, but new hardware does not have those connectors anymore. How about via eSATA or network maybe? How can I attach a tape drive to a Dell R710, for example, to back up some VMs? Does the tape drive show up as a separate storage device? Do we need some software so we can dump the data on the tapes? Can I use a tape drive to back up FreeNAS data? These are all great questions. He's also got some jail-related questions. With, Can you run any kind of jail under FreeNAS, or you have to use FreeBSD for that? Does FreeNAS have some limitation within their jails or plug-in system? I hope it's not too many questions. Thanks again to Dan for posting links to his gear on twitter yeah i think we all appreciate that dan uh as the uh, tape drive expert i'll let you dive right in okay 
some of these questions I knew right away, and some of them I had to go looking elsewhere. So iSCSI. iSCSI is not what you're thinking it is. iSCSI is uh, a protocol between your computer and, say, a storage device, and it lets uh, storage over there appear as if it's a local drive. That, that's, that's the short version of it. But what you're actually thinking about is SCSI, which is Small Computer Systems Interface, which is a different thing altogether. Uh, so a SCSI card fits in, in, say, the PCI slot or the ISA slot, and then you plug your tape drive into it. And that's entirely different. But I have SCSI devices in the computers back here, and I use them to talk to the tape drives. Uh, you just got to make sure that you match your SCSI card to your SCSI device properly because there's different types of SCSI such as LVD and uh, I can't remember the others. It, it is confusing. Ask others for help. Verify that what you're getting is the right one. You can find all kinds of SCSI cards and I guarantee you, you will find the SCSI card you need for the device you want on eBay. It'll be reasonably priced. Um no, not eSATA or network. Generally, no, you don't connect to your tape drive that way. I have actually only this past week connected a tape drive to an R710. It's in that rack right back there. It is a Dell TL4000 uh, uh, LTO4 tape library. It's connected via a uh, uh, an 8087 cable to a SAS card in the LR710 works well. I haven't actually used it yet, right. but I used the same card in a in another Dell, a Dell R610, and it worked just fine. Um, it shows up as a separate storage device. So on FreeBSD, it shows up as device SA0 for the first tape drive. On Linux, it shows up as a ST0. Oh, okay. Now, do you need some software to dump the data on the tapes? No, you can actually use TAR, which is tape archiving. So you need some software, but you probably yeah. already have that one. Yeah, you you want to use Bacula. You want to use Bacula and Postgres to do your backups to tape. So it's a high entry. It's a higher entry uh, level, right. but you will be happy with it. Uh, now, this is a bit I had to ask others. Jail's under FreeNAS. I looked at the documentation. There's a link in the show notes, or I will add the link to the show notes. Um, jails under FreeBSD, uh, under FreeNAS are basically jails under uh, FreeBSD, but you really, really want to use their GUI interface to not start fooling around with the jails from the command line, or you will be unhappy. Um, if... <laughs> Pardon me. If jails are your primary purpose under FreeNAS, uh, instead maybe you should choose FreeBSD and have FreeNAS as being your, your storage device. Um, it's yeah. If you want to make use of jails, I'd recommend using FreeBSD straight rather than FreeNAS. Uh, you you got to decide what, what's your goal: jails or storage? Right. Yeah. And use one. Use whichever one is your primary. Um, it's a little bit harder to upgrade jails under FreeNAS. Um, but yeah, if that doesn't help, ask more questions. Perfect. There we go. Thank you very much for your uh, wonderful question there. Let's move right along. Uh, in follow-up to our containers 
uh, and Jail's episode, Samir sent us a link to an article over at datamation.com from old friend of the network Matt Hartley talking about Linux containers and virtual machines. So if anyone's curious more about you know some of the differences, this article does a good job of highlighting some of the use cases and differences between those. Go check it out. Then That is very nice. Yeah. That is very nice. Uh, then Jonathan Davis sent us a link to this hilarious mug, Schrodinger's Immutable Law of Computer Backups. The condition of any backup is unknowable until a restore is attempted. That is oh so true and really just a good reminder to go you know go check your backups do a restore if you haven't done a restore yes. you really don't know that it works and then you have nothing yes and you don't exactly. want to be that guy with the with the terrible story about he thought he had backups turns out the backups were corrupted or they weren't being taken anymore the cron job was silently failing any all of those have and do happen to people so don't let it happen to you okay and then uh moving right along from the coding cowboy I will miss you, Mr. Dan. Just wanted to write and tell you that I will truly miss Mr. Dan on the show. He has so much knowledge. However, I know that what it's like to want to pursue other areas, but your plate is already full and something has to give. I know these shows are a lot of work and I do appreciate what you guys do. Anyway, it's sad to see you go, but I will keep following you on the Twitter and your blogs. Again, thanks for all your knowledge sharing. Have fun, Coding Cowboy. Well, thank you, Coding Cowboy. I'm sure Dan loves appreciates that very much. We're all sad to see Dan go, but he's doing lots of other fun things. Go to some of the conferences he helps organize. Follow him on Twitter. Lots of fun ways to stay in touch with Dan. Thank you. We've got one more feedback item today. This is from Stephen K. Hey, guys. I just want to start saying I'm sorry to see Dan leave. You've been an incredible source of information and news. To my question, I'm going to be making some changes to my home network and how I access my devices. Currently, if I'm outside my network, I use Chrome Remote Desktop to access a Windows 10 machine that is always running, running some Windows-only applications. They don't work at all in Wine. That's unfortunate, but uh, we've all been there. The setup works well enough, but I want to try and remove my dependency on Google to access things on my LAN. I recently started playing with reverse SSH connections and was wondering if I could use this in conjunction with the DigitalOcean droplet. Ideally, we, I would like to set up where I could have server.example.com point to the DO droplet and have home.example.com bring, bring me to my home server. Is there any way to keep the reverse SSH connection up and reconnect to it after an internet outage? Not that uncommon in my area. I guess I need to know if this would be reliable enough where I can access things on my LAN. This would mostly be security cameras and accessing media and other items on my NAS. I, mean, I, think, I think we've all been, uh, you know scared to yeah. to have your connection drop and you can no longer access your house and you suddenly oh, all my things i was relying on that or that one time that you really need it um and is there a way so that i don't need to treat my do droplet as a jump box ssh into the do droplet and then in the droplet ssh into my home server thanks guys boy okay so there's a lot there to unpack I, I agree. Uh, wanting to to remove Google from that dependency chain is a uh, you know is a very reasonable idea. Um, so you say you started playing with reverse SSH connections um, and is wondering if there's a way to use this in conjunction with the DigitalOcean droplet. So ideally, you could you you could go there um, and this would just forward you right to your home server. I'm not sure there's a way to make it quite that direct. Now, you, what you probably the easiest thing to do uh, would be to have it set up so that your home server is always making an SSH connection to your. Well, you know, I guess you could. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you would want to. What you could do is configure SSH. Normally, this isn't isn't allowed, but change your SSH config to allow 
the, the forwarded port to listen on the wildcard address on your DigitalOcean droplet. And then you could have um, a, however what, a scheduled task of some sort, however you're going to schedule it, that triggers an SSH connection from your home server to the DigitalOcean droplet and then forwards its SSH port to the DigitalOcean droplet and listens on the wildcard address so that accept, uh, connections from the internet are accepted. Uh, you'd probably want to put that on a different port, just as SSH would already be used. Um, if you have an SSH connection, you have to move one of the ports, basically. Um, then you would be able to SSH directly through your DigitalOcean droplet to your home server. That's the most convenient case. There's also, if you just want to forward it and have it sit there locally, not exposed to the whole internet, you might get some more, more security that way. There's some pretty easy things you can do with SSH config settings if you're always using SSH so that, you know, you don't have to manually do two SSHs. The jump happens without you having to touch anything. So that would be fine as well. Um, if you need more robust than just an SSH port, if you want to have other network settings, I would look into SSH's ability to set up a TUN interface so you can do a layer three tunneling over SSH. Again, this is an SSHD config change that you'll have to do. It's not enabled by default for security reasons, uh, but really they've, there's a lot of VPN-like options. Actually, there was just a good discussion um, this week on the internet about that. I will provide that link in the show notes. So I almost brought it onto the show, but... Now it's now it's more relevant than ever. So hopefully that answers your question. Yes, you can do it. You're just going to want to forward your port and modify the settings. I will link to the SSHD man page and documentation. You can go read about some of the settings in the show notes. So hopefully that helps you, Stephen. And good luck with your Google-less SSHing. Anything you want to add, Mr. Dan? In his last paragraph, he says, is there a way so I don't have to treat my DO droplet as a junk box. Look at dynamic DNS for your home connection so that when your connection drops, uh, dynamic DNS will update the host name. Okay, So that home.example.org is always up to date for that that domain. Um, That's usually free and you can buy something relatively cheaply. I think it's like five bucks a year or something. You can find some very good solutions. But yeah, dynamic DNS will allow you to go straight to home and bypass the droplet altogether. Absolutely. You know, that's a great point. Um, uh, Hurricane Electric in particular provides that mm. as a free service. Pretty easy to set up. I have a cron job that runs a curl to keep my home DNS up to date. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's a great point. And sidestepping the question entirely, I like it. Uh, if anyone else has any uh, tips they want to do or alternative suggestions, other helpful tools, there's so many of them available. We just can't keep track and we rely on you guys to keep us straight. So thank you very much. You can send contact information or you can send us feedback at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact, techsnap.reddit.com or find us both on Twitter. Now, Dan won't have anything, you know, he'll be doing his own things in the future, but uh, you can still harass him. Yes, you can. That's it for the feedback segment. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with the roundup. And that brings us to the final segment of today's show. Sad though it may be to see Dan go, he's still got some wisdom left to depart with us. We'll extract that last bit of wisdom here in today's roundup. First up, the potential impact of the Intel management engine vulnerability. This is an article over at uh, Matthew Garrett's blog. Yeah, we. I think we only briefly covered this issue a few weeks ago, only as a as a roundup item. But basically, I'll just read this one paragraph. Intel's management engine, ME, is a small coprocessor 
built into the majority of Intel CPU's chipsets. Older versions were based on the ARC architecture. <laughs> That's hard to say. Yeah, embedding a, a running an embedded real-time operating system. But from version 11 onwards, they've been small x86 cores running Minix. Ooh, cool. That's Andrew Tannenbaum? I think I have the name right. Sorry if I don't. The precise capabilities of the ME have not been publicly disclosed, but it is, is but it is at a minimum capable of interacting with the network, display USB input devices, and f- system flash. In other words, software is r- software running on the ME is capable of doing a lot without requiring any OS permissions in the process. So. Read the rest of this article. It goes into a lot of details of what is possible. This chap here is a power management mobile and firmware developer on Linux. Um, It's easy to say that I think he knows what he's talking about. He definitely does. He spent a long time looking at uh, firmware-level things, developing, helping develop some of the EFI uh, utilities that exist in the Linux world and many other things. So definitely a voice of uh, someone to listen to in this space. Okay, well, moving right along, there's a lot there. It may show up on a future tech snap, but uh, go get a head start mm-hmm, checking that mm-hmm, out. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's a handy tool I was looking at. I haven't really tried it yet, but it's on my radar for this week. Say, Sanoid? Sanoid? How do you think you say that one? Uh, I think it's Sanoid. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, now, it, it's a policy-driven shot. Um, policy-driven snapshot management and replication tools, mainly aimed at ZFS, but it can. they have explicit plans to support ButterFS when it becomes more reliable. Primarily intended for Linux, but BSD use is supported and reasonably frequently tested. Now, that said, there's another one. In the same show notes, there's a link to ZFS Tools, which is a FreeBSD-specific, well, I say FreeBSD-specific because he says it's an open Solaris-like and auto-compatible auto-snapshotting script, which also supports auto-snapshotting MySQL databases. And it was written by uh, one of the uh, FreeBSD committers, Brian Drury. I think this is the one that Alan Jude uses, and I remember chastising him for uh, for it because it uses Ruby. But now I'm not so <laughs> hung up on that detail. That's adorable. I love it. Yeah, it just seemed like you know, ZFS has a, has a ton of great op- options available mm. for snapshotting, mm. taking backups, all of these things. And I was just looking at some tools. In particular, uh, Sanoid has some integration with uh, the KVM hypervisor for if you want to you know use that storage for virtual machines. So that's something I will be yes. playing with. Perhaps we'll talk about more on future TechSnap. Yeah, that's something. Roundup. I, yeah, and I want to start using ZFS tools. I want a policy-driven thing. Yeah, absolutely. I hope you do, and uh, please write about it. I will. So uh, next up, staying over in the BSD landscape, uh, the NetBSD blog, they're always doing interesting things, and uh, they've got a great post up about the strongest KASLR ever. Uh, they, yes. They recently just had, you know, had talked about um, talked about their implementation, but they've done a bunch of new work, uh, and this article dives into what that is, how it might work, and why it's secure. Basically... The existing design had several drawbacks. One leak or one successful cache attack would be enough to reconstruct the layout of the entire kernel and defeat KASLR. But the new design significantly improves this situation. Basically, 
each kernel elf section is randomized independently. So instead of randomizing all the components, you also randomize the components internally. So each separate section is randomized. I may be describing that wrong, but that's the idea. Yeah, and so uh, KASLR is kernel address space layout randomization so that, uh, you know, that the kernel, where the kernel resides in memory is not fixed and static. Uh, it is randomized, making attacks harder on particular memory regions. So definitely a worthwhile thing to pursue and uh, a great write-up. Even if you haven't kind of, you know, if you haven't studied this stuff before, they do a reasonably good job of diving into that. They've got some great diagram, diagrams. So really the roundout item to uh, do a deep dive of your own. Now, next up, kind of in the same vein, better random number generation for OpenSSL, LibC, and the Linux mainline. This is a post at Amazon's AWS blog. They've done some work recently on S2N, a new open source implementation of the TLS and SSL protocols. And uh, they've been contributing some work back from that. So it's interesting to see that it's definitely interesting work. And uh, there's some particular highlights, Dan, I think that you were interested in. Yes, let me read this this two sentences that they have here. But what's really interesting for us is that in the course of working on LibC, we were also able to get traction on another important change in Linux itself. Last year, we suggested a new mAdvise option for the Linux kernel based on OpenBSD's M inherit zero, the option marks memory regions as wipe on fork, which means that those regions are zeroed in a child process immediately after a fork call. Why would anyone care about this? Basically, if a fork happens, the child doesn't get to see what was in there before the fork occurred. Basically, it's sanitizing the memory before the child process gets to use it. And that is a good thing because it can't then read stale stuff for example which might include sensitive data yeah exactly maybe there's keys hiding in there or, or other things mm-hmm. so anyway yeah uh, you know amazon does all kinds of things this is pretty interesting and they've done a lot of great work on s2n in particular in terms of making it a minimal reliable secure secure you know secure implementation they've done some work to try to prove it secure and or prove it compliant with their spec lots of good stuff there so go check that out if you haven't heard of s2n before mm-hmm Okay, now over at Amplitude's engineering blog, how a single Postgres config change improved slow query performance by 50x. Wow, that's uh, quite the statement. Yes. Well, Postgres haters will say, oh my god, you have to tune it like that to get 50 50 times faster? It's 50 times slower if you don't do things right? (laughs) Right. Well, yes, it is. With great flexibility comes a great many uh, configuration options. In this case, basically, it's statistics-based. When you figure out what's good for one join, it's it's called a query planner. And the query planner is very intelligent, but sometimes it makes errors because the, the default install assumes you're running off hard drives, which means that reading a whole bunch of stuff may be easier than doing the index. So, go away, Siri. Um, Basically, if you use the default configuration and you're running all on SSDs, sometimes the random page cost versus the sequential page cost is skewed. So, Right, okay, that makes sense. Playing around with those options 
particularly in your environment, may give you much better results. And the graph shows that. Basically, they get a lot better once they acknowledge the fact that their install base was not default or did not match the defaults that were given. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you can only have you can only really have the one default configuration. You try to make it as widely applicable as you can, but yep. especially for something as niche and important as databases, mm-hmm. that's difficult. And I think it is reasonable, especially in that regard. Uh, you know, if you do if if your database is your bottleneck, if you're in the space of using it in production, monitoring it, watching it, then it's pretty reasonable to uh, you know have to do some configuration for your specific use case. So it's yeah, great that um, those those. Uh, knobs exist you, you want your default install to come up and work so that someone at least gets it running once you start getting into the specifics of your app you really should change the default values exactly um yeah and as you said you know the query the query sql is a descriptive language it has this query planner to actually figure out how the heck you're going to run those queries get the information out of the database and it, it really can't be perfect so if you can give it additional information to make better you know better plans that's a good thing. Okay, so yes. we talked about Troy Hunt at the start of the show. Let's jump right back there. He's testifying in front of Congress in Washington, D.C. about data breaches. He's yes, he is. What should he say? Uh, I think he's already figured that out because this blog post is from six days ago, actually probably more days ago than that because he's on Australia time. He's actually in the U.S. now. Uh, He's going to be testifying on Thursday, and the reason I included this post is that you can watch it live on the internet. It starts uh, at 10.15 Eastern Time, November 30th, and there's a link to the live stream in the show notes. I encourage everyone to watch and listen to what Troy will say before Congress, because this affects a lot of people. Basically, he's going to be talking... Uh, the the title of it is Identity Verification in a Post-Breach World. There's going to be a lot of very interesting things coming out of that. There's also Jeremy Grant and Ed Merzinski. Mer- Mer- Close He's basically, Yeah. So have a look. Yeah, it definitely. should be interesting. He, you know, these are some these are some big names with important opinions, and I, yes. I hope the legislators, you know, heed their advice and take it seriously. Yes. But we yes. will have to wait and see. Yes. Okay. So something a little lighter. Next up is a minimalist guide to TMUX. Now, have you used Screen before? I have. Because I used to use Screen a lot, but I've moved over to TMUX. Um, Basically, imagine that you've SSH'd into a computer and you've started a long process. Oh, damn. I can't log out. This is going to take hours. What am I going to do? Well, you could background it, but it may not work. If you start it in Tmux, if you start a Tmux session, then start your long-running thing, you can disconnect from Tmux, break your SSH connection, and when you SSH back in again, you can go back into the TMUX session. It's like it's like a little virtual world that you're attaching to. And it's very useful for stuff like that. You can also start a TMUX session, connect to IRC, and have that sitting there running while, while you disconnect. It's very useful for that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a terminal multiplexer. So think, uh, think a window manager, but for the terminal. 
Uh, mm-hmm. So long-running mm-hmm. connections, it's useful. You can just have multiple windows and multiple panes. Mm-hmm. So if you just want to lay it out better, yes. you don't want to open more you know, actual terminal, terminal emulators, that's a great option as well. And uh, there are still a few things I, I do use screen for, but uh, Tmux has pretty much entirely replaced it and I think is is the thing to beat these days. It's it's tunable. There's a the lots of configuration options. I would go, oh, yeah. I would go ch- take a look. There's a lot of good people who've, you know, posted their Tmux configs that you can pull and learn from. Uh, if you're not already using it, check it out. I've not used the panes yet. Oh, yeah. But I do, but I do use it. I do use it. Excellent. Yeah, you know, it's 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 a lot of fun and uh screen can be set up to do a lot of the things Tmux does, but Tmux just has a really a really good sane default configuration. So Install it with whatever package manager you use on your servers and uh, thank us later. Okay, so we've got one more roundup item. Yes. Over at NetTrack, here's a graph showing SSL issuer popularity. Now, does anything stand out to you about this, Dan? Uh, Yes. Uh, Let's Encrypt has gone from about 5% of domains in May 2016 and a year later, where is May? Uh, let me find May. There's May 2017. They're up to 30%. And now, which is just November of this year, 37% of domains that they looked at used Let's Encrypt. Wow, that's now, some pretty good now, growth. Now, compare that to Komodo, which was 19%. So they're more than twice as popular as Komodo. Now, the thing to keep in mind here is this is just a percentage of sites. It is. N- it doesn't tell you, okay, back in May of 2016, how many sites were using SSL. In other words, Correct. all these people that are now using Let's Encrypt, were they using SSL before or not? And especially so, with Let's Encrypt's use cases and ease of use, you can imagine that there's yes. a significant portion of them who are new to the SSL landscape. Yes, yeah. I, I'm sure there's still going to be a huge market for for SSL paid certs. Yeah, absolutely. But but I know that I I think all of my domains are now using Let's Encrypt. It really was them. that missing piece that uh, you know could enable uh, SSL everywhere. Um, yeah. Now you can get it for free with reasonable ways to automate it. Mm-hmm. There's no longer an excuse of I don't want to pay just to you know, especially yeah. if you're not transmitting secret information. But as we know, SSL provides more benefits than just the encryption over the wire, yeah. and so go get it done. Yeah, and the automation side, you'll never want to install a cert again once you've used right. Let's encrypt. It is. It's just. It's so easy. It's in there, and it just works. Remember to monitor it, but it yeah, just it's works. Still, I was about to say, you know, like the old, the, the old ways, you had to set up a monitor uh, to then go to tell you, a human, to go do some mm-hmm, certain replacements. Mm-hmm, now, it's still mm-hmm, important mm-hmm. to set up your monitoring yes. should anything break. Um, we would never say that, but hopefully you will only have to get involved in serious incidents. So a mm-hmm. lot better. Go check them out. Let's encrypt. Uh, and that's it for today's roundup. This has been... a whole ton of fun dan thank you so much for everything is there anything you want to leave the audience with here on your final episode uh get involved with net neutrality that's a big issue and please let your legislative people know your feelings about it well said uh where can people find you in your post tech snip period uh, org is my main blog and they can find me as dlangel on Twitter. If you just search for Dan Langell, you'll find me. Perfect. All right. 
Well, I just want to say thank you so much for all the time, energy, and wonderful things you've shared on this program. It's been a ton of fun getting to know you and being your co-host here. And I really look forward to all the other things you'll be working on. Um, And hey, if you want to come back on uh, anytime in the future, we could definitely set that up. Sure, sure. You know, short deep dive topics or something like that, I'd be happy to do. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And well, th- th- thank you very much, Wes. It's been a pleasure. Of course. Good luck. Good luck and best wishes. And everyone else, stay tuned to see the next iteration of TechSnap. Should be a wild ride. Thank you. Bye. Bye.